as we know, the Backseat Boys make the best noise and the mm-hmm. most noise. And we just be doing what we doing. Uh, hey, John. Hey, Scott. Do you like movies? I, in fact, love movies. That's good, too. Steve, do you like movies? Oh, yeah. I like them quite a bit. Do you like when film transcends just one type of art and also tells us stories about the human condition? I like nothing better. Fantastic. So, this is Popcorn Eschaton, a side story on the Zebras in America podcast channel, podcast cinematic universe, whatever you want, where... We discuss films, usually two or three, sometimes one, talk about some of their opportunities for leftist discussion, possible praxis when we can, spiritual accesses as well. And when we started doing this podcast, I knew that I really wanted to have someone who in my life is is very important to me, who... Steve McFarlane who is is just a friend we've been friends for a very long time but as I got into like ambient music he was like hey man check out this crystal music from the 90s and 70s you're really gonna like it and um, while he doesn't remember he introduced me to the book Infinite Jest which is is a confusing book because a lot of people that say they have read the book have not a lot of people that have read the book are don't get the point. It's really a book about tennis and addiction, and I thank you for that. And then as I started getting more politically minded, I'd be like, hey man, I'm trying to like learn a little bit more about leftist revolution in Africa. Like, what are some things you recommend? Or, oh, a Walter Rodney, or like, I want to know a little bit more about Sankara, and you're like, bet. And... At a certain point, you're like, hey, man, what do you think about stuff? And that's, and that's pretty cool. And and also, like, s- sent me this really awesome USB of of the of this prank phone call genius. Um, <laughs> oh, God, why am I drawing a blank? Um, long Blood Potion Castle. Oh, man, Long Blood Potion Castle. It's, it's just, it's, it's incredible. It's irreverent. So, yeah. Professor and Chair of Labor Studies at Cal State Dominguez Hills, Steve McFarlane. Thanks for the kind introduction, and uh, there's a lot, lot I could say about you. Uh, you're an excellent man, an extravagant man, as they say in Longmont Potion Castle. Um, definitely met a two-way street, learned, learned so much about music, film, politics from you, so glad to get a chance to talk, even though we don't see each other much these days. Yeah, we live on two sides of the world, so, and... When I was talking to you, you were like, oh, well, check out this syllabus. Do you want to talk a little bit about this class you're teaching? or? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm, uh, I've been teaching since 2020 in a small labor studies program out here um, in the L.A. area, Carson, uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills. We're one of just two labor studies programs in the whole CSU system, so not a major that a lot of students have heard of, but um, basically we get to teach all about work, unions, organizing, um, political economy, race, you know, all from a uh, working class perspective. And uh, I just created a course um, uh, teaching for the first time this semester that's called um, Class Struggles in Film and Popular Culture. And so it's given me a chance to, you know, 
pull out some of my old favorites, watch some, some new films that I've been hearing about, um, and yeah, really kind of think through how workers, working class, class struggle, unions are, are portrayed in media, um, kind of mainstream depictions, stereotypes, um, and also look at some of the you know forms of media resistance, underground films, political films, radical films, um, going back to the you know, earliest days of, of cinema. In fact, I just showed in class that one of the, the first movies that was, you know, widely circulated, uh, Workers Leaving the Factory Gates by the Lumiere Brothers, just a minute or so, everyone heading out the, the door of the factory. Um, so it's been fun. We're about halfway through, and uh, I've been getting a lot of talking to the students. They have, like, I have students that are, you know, as old as their 60s, so people are remembering, like, a whole range of different eras of media, you know, sitcoms, um, going back to the, the 70s and, um, you know, talk about video game. It, it's been just a rich experience. So cool that we can chat a bit about some of the films that I assigned for it. Yeah, the, yeah. I looked at your syllabus, so I was like, damn, I want to take your class. Like, I liked, I liked the literature that was connected to it. And that's the thing. You're just such a very thoughtful person um, when, you know, there was, I was going to say, when cops started killing unarmed people, but that's been happening since cops. Our last episode was actually talking about cops, and I'm never going to stop talking about cops. But when George Floyd was murdered, I was like, I, I, I want to start a, a correspondence course with other white men to sort of unpack our privilege as white men and men and do work do do practice and you you helped me develop a syllabus it was disappointing because only one person was interested uh but that's the thing like you, you're not you really do the work and i think there's this i think it's complex because i see on tiktok these young these young people that like are saying stuff that's totally in the work, totally in the literature and they've not read the literature and, and to, to paraphrase a, a TikTok I saw like, Hey, can't, can I just like feel the vibes of this? And y'all, y'all write the, y'all write the words. I'm just going to vibe. Mm -hmm. And I think yes. And I think it's good to see history and and slowly do the work and and I and I lament often on this show that if you want to be an alt-right or a conservative piece of shit you actually don't have to do praxis. You don't have to do a lot of writing. You just have to you don't even have to be based in in facts. In fact, less facts the better right yeah and and that could that can be really frustrating but yeah to to go through and see that that these concepts have been in film since film and as we're talking right now finally the the strikes are are showing the the writer strike and sag strike there's a lot of strikes happening right now it's very exciting Pay people a livable wage. What can I say? Yeah, but we you may go on strike uh, in the university system. Uh, we're calling a strike vote uh, in about three weeks. So, uh, 
biggest state university system out there, about 450,000 students, and definitely been inspired by what's what's been going on in Hollywood and kind of all around the country the last year or two. Oh, man, I'm proud of you, you know? And there's, yeah, there's just so much, there's so much praxis to do. There's so much striking. There's, you know, don't, your voice, your voice is important. And I forget, is, is blue collar on your syllabus? Um, I think it got bumped just because the, the 70s was like one of those periods where there's just kind of rediscovery and like a lot of movies being made about work and workers and, and unions. So I think I, I picked uh, Stallone's Fist along, along with Norma Ray for that. that yeah. Work. But, but I think probably as I teach this, I'll, I'll kind of cycle through because yeah, that's really a gem too. It's a gem, but we did an episode about Paul Schrader because he's he's a real complicated character and John is more so than I the Scorsese head of the group and you can't really have Scorsese without Schrader there mm. they are yin and yang if the yin is Calvinist no Protestant and the yang yeah is... he's, he's Calvinist yeah right mm. yes yes and the yang is Catholicism but the thing about blue collar is it's a really great movie, but the nitty gritty of unions and stuff leaves a little to be desired. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty despairing and cynical, uh, but also lands some legit critiques of the labor movement. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's a rich one. And, you know, what excited me about this episode is one of my big blind spots is Charlie Chaplin. So so you had us for one of the episodes, one of these one of the part of this episode that we're talking about is a Charlie Chaplin movie and I've been talking a whole lot. So John, would yes. you like to tell us a little bit about the Charlie Chaplin piece of the menu? Sure. Um, so Modern Times is the 1936 now, you know, obvious classic uh, by Chaplin where he, you know, stars, directs, wrote, wrote the music. Um, you know, by this time, he might have been the most famous person in the world. Um, and it, we're nine years into the sound era and the movie is still told in the language of silent film uh, right up in, until the very end when there's a very, very famous musical sequence. And this is really where we see his um, social ideas uh, come to the fore most blatantly. Um, you know, Steve, you shared an article with us about how, you know, because there's no kind of direct political commentary, the the humanism and the everymanism of the tramp sort of transcends politics. It's It's about, like base things like being hungry uh, rather than how to achieve greater equality uh, through, you know, political change. But I think that helped Chaplin as a performer, you know, connect with people all over the world. And I think by 1940, he's probably the only person on the planet who could have made the great dictator mm -hmm. and not, not be, you know, <laughs> uh, murdered for it. Um, but yeah, it's, this is actually my first time watching it, so 
Um, Chaplin is generally a, a pretty big blind spot for me as well, so I'm very grateful to have um, watched it for this episode. Cool. Yeah, I, I got exposed early. I had an, an uncle who, when he babysit for us, would sort of use it as an opportunity to uh, to uh, expose me and my brother to his favorites and sort of uh, film history. And so I was watching watching Chaplin and the Marx Brothers and a lot of that that stuff from an early age. But it's been great to revisit it you know, as an adult too. I was just like, holy crap! This movie is nearly perfect. Like seriously, it's just this, it's just this character, and just going through these things, and it's like a Rube Goldberg machine of, of of excitement, of of malady, but with this trademark Chapman wit, you know, of like oh this thing is happening, and then this thing is happening, and I can't get a break, and I do get a break, and there's there's love. And there's sadness, and then there's hope. Like, like how how is he doing this so many years ago when when people still can't make satire like this? You know, I I think there is something to be said for the fact that he grew up in, I think we can call like absolute poverty. Mm. Like he. It, it was impossible to be poorer um, than he was as a child. And so, you know, he, he was in danger of starving to death or dying from exposure. And, and he eventually made his way through the, you know, uh, British music hall scene and, and became a superstar, obviously. But that helped him empathize with people who were broken by the Depression or were suffered from starvation or systemic unemployment. And the fact that he was connecting with his audience on a human level every day, I think, helped him, you know, manifest the tramp in a way that viewers could empathize with. And I'm not saying that a performer, in order to be egalitarian in their art, has to have grown up in crushing poverty. But I think that's something he kept with him all of his life. And, and I think everything about the tramp, from his, his walk to his facial expressions um, to the chaos he, he, he brings to, you know, the police and the capitalists, I, all of that um, creates this package to help audiences just immediately connect with him. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's like a real deep um, anti-authoritarian streak, you know, a kind of anarchist streak that probably goes back to that early childhood, too. I was reading a a chapter in a pretty cool book called uh, Hollywood Left and Right by Stephen Ross that kind of looks at, you know, left and right figures throughout the history of Hollywood, Reagan and Warren Beatty and, and you know, um, and, and the chapter on Chaplin, like, yeah, talks about him growing up in this, um, you know, being put in an orphanage for a couple of years at a time, just a really brutal place where, you know, the kids were being beaten and humiliated in, in front of each other to the point where so violent, like, some of the kids watching would would pass out just from being so so freaked out by it, and I, I think you just see that that spirit of rebellion against like unaccountable authority and and the institutions that are supposed to be serving protecting people just you know failing at that and um, you know kind of everywhere he goes you know I think a lot of the discussion in the movie focuses on the factory and the technology, but it's also you know the police and the and the wardens and you know kind of every institution that he encounters. There's there's a 
you know, level of brutality that he's constantly fighting against with all sorts of liveliness and creativity and imagination. It's so interesting to me that, you know, he'd been playing with the idea of making a talkie um, for a couple years, and he intended Modern Times to be a full talkie, but he abandoned that. But, you know, the first human voice we hear is the factory boss, the capitalist, spoken through a closed-circuit television. Mm. So I think that I think even that, you know, in the opening sequence is such a statement on how he's he views progress and technology in the 1930s, which is sort of intertwined with capitalism. Well, everything is intertwined with capitalism and exploitation and destruction, especially America of that time and a man just trying to make his own just like fearless art much to the detriment of really maybe ever reaching the the zenith the peak that he could have right but i don't know he's inspiring i'm like really excited now to just like get deep into chaplin and see his stuff because his face acting his body acting his fervor just just really deeply uh moves me in in a way that i that i was very surprised and i was talking to um john earlier today that i recently watched ari aster's bow is afraid have you had a chance to see it uh steve no no i haven't it's like it's like a a very <clears throat> pardon me it's a very onanistic sort of uh parable and adventure and and i'm like i think anyone making an adventure movie a parable movie a movie about growth needs to see this movie because it hits it it hits all the it hits this like this is happening and this is happening and this is happening and this is happening you know the the thing that i used to call you know the Forrest Gump story the where everything is just happening to this character where right or mm-hmm. as Gil as, yeah as Gil Scott Heron said it ain't no new thing right mm-hmm. so so it all it all hits and yeah what, what, like what's your experience with Charlie Chaplin and and just like what makes you choose a, choose a, choose a movie for teaching and and how it incorporates praxis and because i'm because i'm being silly are there spiritual undertones in 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 your eyes to this film interesting yeah um yeah i've i've I've, like taught this one a few times i used to teach like a summer film class for um kids at horace mann elite prep school up in the bronx and this was just one i kind of picked because i liked it and it's it's sort of you know, emblematic of that that moment. Um, but you know, teaching it now in the context of, of labor studies, um, uh, one thing it's like it's it's hugely popular. It's just like hugely enjoyable, and it and it you know it, it made a, a big hit. I mean, he was already a star, but this was the one that really, you know, put him in a, in a, a you know an, an upper level of of uh, you know just talent. And I think pro- prior to that, he was already able to kind of write his own ticket. Just, make movies he wanted to you know just on on the strength of his his celebrity but 
Um, I teach this one in, in, a, in a week where we're kind of just starting out in the early part of the semester, like thinking through what, what is social class, you know, um, and then we kind of go on to talk about, well, what is class conflict, class struggle, how, how does that class struggle, you know, uh, permeate not just the workplace, but society and, and media. And, and this week, we're, you know, we're sort of reading and thinking about, you know, why are we encouraged to think of class as just really about uh, consumption and, you know, kind of lifestyle and, um, you know, that we're, we're, we're class is kind of just, a, they use the metaphor of a ladder where everyone can kind of climb to the next rung on the, on the class ladder. And um, as opposed to, you know, a, a kind of a, a pyramid metaphor where uh, there's a lot of people at the bottom holding up uh, people on the upper rungs and they're in relationship, you know, the, the classes are formed and, and um, you know, the reality of them is, is in, in this relationship of exploitation and, and oppression. And um, I think that the Chaplin film kind of like shows both ways of, of looking at class like that you know there are those those workplace scenes and and these experiences of you know unemployment and and you know the fact that as, as workers you just need to, to work for for somebody all your alternative is you know stealing bananas off the off the docks or, or what have you um, um, but also we sort of see something that's emblematic of the movies that came out in the 20s um, what are called uh, cross-class fantasy movies like Cecil B. DeMille is mm-hmm. You know the the kind of um, one who made these really, uh, you know, kind of almost a cliche by by the end of the twenties. And these are these stories where, like, by like a twist of fate, someone meets up or marries a, a wealthy person, or sort of schemes to you know transcend their their class status. And you know, uh, Orchids and Ermine is one. It's all about you know getting the the nice perfumes and the fur coats and and the luxury cars and, and so on. And that you know this is really. A, a lot of what was going on in the 20s as the economy was booming, as the labor movement had been really suppressed. Um, you know, this was the kind of stories that, that people were interested in. And at the time, you know, film was becoming less of like just a, a working class form of entertainment and more of a middle class and society wide one where, uh, you know, the movie palaces of, of those those years and the, you know, the red carpet and all the rest of it. And I think there's this part of the chaplain of the modern time story that kind of is about that. You know, they're dreaming of this, this life of luxury and having, you know, fruit trees out the window and, and a cow that you can, you know, milk out the back door and just having plenty enough to eat and more and, you know, going to the department store and, you know, having access to all these, these goods as they do in the, in the scene on the night watch. And so it's, it's kind of a rich window for students to talk about, you know, is, is class really just about, you know, these markers of, of home ownership and, and clothing, or is it really about a, um, a relationship, um, you know, that, that we're, we're in and, and, you know, limits and choices that both capitalists and workers have um, in that situation? You, you know, I, I found that um, the dream house sequence particularly powerful because they're fantasizing about, you know, a, an ideal world free from want but they don't even know what plenty looks like. Like, when when they imagine, like, you know, a, a cow giving milk, you know, it's like they tap, Chaplin taps the cow in the back and it just sort of, like, spurts <laughs> a glass of milk. And he, and for him, plenty is just, like, trees growing into his, into his kitchen window. Like, he doesn't even understand the lifestyle of, the rich in order to dream about it like that's how far he is from from being wealthy and so it's funny and there's gags from that but that just shows you how how low on the ladder 
uh, truly um, the Tramp and the Gamine are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it just, like, shows how, how much more effective it is to, for a movie to be to be fun and, like, mm-hmm. participating in, in some, you know, genre conventions and just, like, you know, kind of a, a an enjoyable experience and that and messages can really land, you know, strong, more strongly. They don't, it doesn't have to be a kind of, like, dour, luxury type of, uh, you know, communication of, of the nature of class and society and critiques. Because, and... like, I think Metropolis is one of the greatest movies ever made but modern times plays in a lot of the same thematic and even like aesthetic sandboxes with you know the the gears and and the factory scenes but modern times is infinitely more accessible than metropolis like you can show modern times to a 10 year old but you know i would not show metropolis to anybody but who's like interested in the history of film um, or, or maybe in, in the history of, you know, technology or, or labor, but th- there is just something so universal about a movie like this that makes those messages so accessible. Absolutely, and it just allows us to just sort of add little pieces to our understanding and language, and as we grow and start talking about these things, you know this trick I do it at parties and dinners is I go Rihanna's a bad person <laughs> and they go what do you mean I'm like well Rihanna's a billionaire and billionaires are bad people and they're like what do you mean I'm like I don't believe that you can be a billionaire and be a good person and I don't think there should be billionaires there's no need for billionaires, and at first people are like, you're oh you're you're being you're being crazy man like God like why not if you work really hard I'm like it ain't about that and and while we're at it like it ain't about the type of straw you use either baby it's <laughs> it's about the fact that a lot of pe like a lot of people don't have a lot. And a very few people have everything. And you see it, and then you think, you know, there's... It's a silly movie, but Les Miserables, the, the musical, um, is essentially this man's life is, is, is over because he stole a little bread. And that's... Do I even... Like, you know, it's, but that's barely even a metaphor. We just need a little morsel of bread. We're just trying to do our best. And we're punished. I'm sorry. I, I, get, I get very upset about food inequality. And, and I don't know how I totally got in there. But well, well, Chaplin is too. You know, I think he's somebody who knows what it's like to be starving. And, you know, there are like four food gags in mm-hmm. this movie. And, you know, one of the most famous bits of Chaplin's career is the, the like, the loaves of bread on, on sticks that he uses as, like, uh, you know, kick line feet. He's, he's constantly d- using food in, in different ways. And even um, there's a point where he gets a job as a night watchman, and these guys come in to steal from, from the, the, the department store, 
And they even say, we're not burglars, we're just hungry. So he's pointing out the fact that like it's it's inequality that creates you know <laughs> chaos in people's lives it, it's it's not criminality or or personal immorality it's these systemic problems right and uh, anyways speaking of corporations and oh but uh, real quick scott huh. um i i just found in my notes you were asking about um, spiritual connection to this movie, um, and I got this from the commentary. Um, so Chaplin characterized both these, both of the Tramp and the Gamine as not victims, um, but as spiritual escapees, uh, free humans in a world full of automatons. Um, they are spiritually free, two joyous spirits living by their wits. Um, so to Chaplin, in conceiving of this movie, he, he was thinking of a spiritual angle with these characters. Yeah, and I, I read uh, in that same chapter, I mentioned that um, one of his kind of early paths towards a more critical or radical consciousness was a, a, a kind of an atheist book by an author whose name didn't ring a bell with me, but seemed from the context to be like an important writer, you know, in those days. And I think Chaplin's experience with like pretty oppressive, you know, religious institution of the orphanage, you know, primed him to to be somewhat critical, you know, of, of uh, you know, overall religious worldview, but there's, like, you know, something deeply reverent and humanistic about, yeah, just the way his, his characters are portrayed and, and interact, and um, I think of the um, the, the monologue in the, the Great Dictator, which, which John mentioned earlier, is really kind of like a, his overt statement of, of his kind of moral and political philosophy, and, you know, these ideas of life being an adventure, and that we can all be living, you know, and, and sharing and enjoying life together if only we can combat greed and you know uh, violence and warfare in, in the world and um yeah i think he's someone who really had a a, a pretty deep vision of, of human connection and, and community amen amen um so then another movie that that we got excited to watch is like unabashedly one of my litmus tests for talking to somebody about film obviously we're talking about John Carpenter's They Live you either like this movie which is wrong you either love this you either love this movie which is correct you're confused by the movie also correct or you hate the movie and I want to hear more. But I know I know John Carpenter fans love the thing. They're like, that's the greatest movie ever made. I mean, people really fanboy for the thing. And John Carpenter's made a lot of hits that that like cult hits that are just that I love, like Big Trouble in Little China and you know, it's made a lot of a lot of joints. But for me, his masterpiece is They Live. And uh, so, John, tell us a little bit about this movie. And Steve, tell me a little bit about, you know, wh why this movie in this class, which, which, I, which I thought, it blew my mind. Hell yeah, all right. Uh, so, They Live, um, 1989 
excoriation of Reaganite America, uh, directed by John Carpenter, uh, starring my man, Rowdy Roddy Piper, as John Nada, um, a wandering laborer just looking to put in a hard day's work, um, finds it incredibly difficult to find work, has to sort of beg for a decent day's wages, um, living hand-to-mouth, mostly homeless, and encounters um, an underground resistance movement who are fighting against this unseen influence that turns out to be aliens. And he eventually acquires sunglasses that help him see the propaganda that the aliens are spewing at us um, 24-7 through the media. And he's able to see the aliens disguised as human beings and him and Frank, um, played by the great Keith David, go on a killing spree to try and rid the world of these invaders. And this movie's most famous scene is the eight-minute-long <laughs> fight scene, which is perfect. <laughs> it's And only Rowdy Roddy Piper could have played this role because his physicality... The, what he brings to John Nada, especially in that fight scene, and anytime he's shirtless, um, he's just an indelible screen presence. And um, and I, I've had the opportunity, uh, before cons became a thing, I g- got to talk to him for a while at a con, and it was just one of the coolest experiences. Everything you'd want that guy to be, he was. Hi, this is John uh, with another self-correction. Um, I know uh, cons have been a thing for, you know, 50 years or so or more. I just meant that before it would have cost $100 or something to get um, time with Roddy Roddy Piper. It, it was pretty easy, and I was able to have a long conversation with him. That's all. Thanks. Yeah, because John Arminio works in the comic book industry. Ah, very cool. So, yeah, so Steve, tell me about They Live, man. Yeah, this this is one that, um, you know, I, I remember quoting the, the, the line about kicking ass and chewing bubble gum, which I think when we used to use as kids, I had it in reverse somehow. So when I heard it in the movie watching it recently, I was like, oh, he's came here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. I thought it was the other way around. But, uh, you know, I remember, like, obviously Roddy Piper in the WWF days and, and, the, and the character then. And, you know, I had been hearing about how great John Carpenter's movies were. So, yeah, like Scotty said, um, so so many gems. And um, during the pandemic, I got a chance to watch a few of them. And watching this, and also um, there's a great uh, Zizek uh, kind of film essay documentary called The Pirate's oh, yeah. Guide to Cinema. And he, he takes uh-huh. apart that the, the fight scene that John referenced earlier and kind of talks about it as really a, a parable of, of ideology and trying to trying to teach people to see the world in another way. So I, I kind of use this film in the, the week um, where I was talking with students about, you know, what are the ideological sunglasses or lenses that, that you use to view the world? Um, you know, have those changed? What have been the things that have kind of made you feel like you're seeing things in a, in a new light um is it as hard to convince someone to to you know view the world in, in a new way as it is to, in that in that uh fight and wrestling match uh, you know put on the glasses um 
so yeah, really thinking about this uh, class struggle at the level of, of culture and ideology. I feel like this, you know, this movie offers so much. And again, it's just like a lot of fun. So, so campy, so over the top. Um, you know, I think it was number one at the box office when, when it uh, came out, even though the critics were totally slamming it and, and just by word of mouth, you know, sort of like an instant classic. Um, so yeah, so a lot to say about it. I'm glad you mentioned the shirtless thing. Cause that's a, something the two movies have in common. There's that weird middle manager guy in, in modern times. who's like operating the levers uh, shirtlessly and uh, would, that, that actor would go on to be a wrestler ah so there you go yeah and john nada of course felt the need to take his shirt off at, at the construction site probably not allowed by osha these days um, and and john nada's name is in the film uh, sorry. <laughs> a, and an understanding in this film is Anyways, um, I'm, my Slavoj impression is is not great, and and I, I really do enjoy the man that is Slavoj Zizek. I don't always see eye to eye to him. Um, Lost Causes is a book that confuses me and confounds me, but yeah, I thought yeah, I thought the Perverts Guide to Cinema and the way they unpack they live. I mean. A lot of intelligent people love They Live um, because of obey, you know, mm-hmm. uh, consume, just don't fight, just be a cog in the machine. You know, even when I think of the movie um, The Matrix, you know, which is hilarious that a bunch of people use The Matrix as a term for being co-opted by the the world and you know this that the matrix is this anti-man uh reverse racist hellhole which is created by a parable uh by two trans sisters trying to figure out how to come out like fuck out of here (laughs) um wachowski's forever i love man I love that. I love I love the the Wachowskis even though they make a lot of misses. I think their I think their willingness to to make art and fail is is truly something else. Yeah. Yeah, The Matrix is totally the other movie that was kind of in contention for for this week in the syllabus the slot. Yeah, talking about ideology and and worldview and and how it's shaped and yeah, can we ever be without uh, glasses? You know, is there a way of seeing the world clearly? And uh, yeah, and obviously there's like some some clear religious stuff going on here with the the opening monologue of the the preacher, um, kind of you know trying to get everyone to see what's going on in the world. Uh, you know, it's I don't exactly know what the racial politics of this movie are, but I think John Carpenter is, he's saying something. Um, You know, because it's a black preacher who's giving the prophecy of the film in the opening scenes, um, the hideout is in an African Episcopal church, and you have John Nada forcing his worldview, his sunglasses, onto Frank, who is black, 
who had said in the film, I just got to stay on the white line. Don't make waves. And Roddy Roddy Piper says, the white line's in the middle of the road. That's the worst place to drive. So, you know, you have a white guy telling a black guy, you have to make waves. Um, And that's, you know, that's definitely something from the place of privilege of being, you know, white and not persecuted by police. Um, But, you know, it's interesting in a movie that is so, you know, over the top and campy that it's, it's not afraid to at least touch on, on these issues. Yeah. And there's this like, you know, white savior complex of, and like, there's like the the D'Angelo's of the world that are doing like the you know uh, undoing like anti-racist stuff in work in you know work meetings where uh, Beverly D'Angelo you know where it's like white people making a lot of money telling white people not to be racist where this is not the case it's just I, I ping pong different ideas but there's this problematic thing where like yeah he's like take these glasses we have to do this everybody's fucking you up you, come on man um i'm sorry i lost my train of thought yeah uh, there's, i think there's I'm, I'm not forgetting remembering the exact um exchange but there's also a scene where i seem to remember um uh, that frank is kind of like more, has more of a critical view of this you know this whole situation they're in and this reaganite Wasteland, and you know, LA actually lost almost as many jobs, uh, you know, manufacturing jobs in the '80s as as Detroit and, and and Pittsburgh, and so this was like pretty pretty much true to life. And obviously, we're seeing it again in LA today. These uh, encampments of houseless people, and um, you know, really a lot of people not being able to make it. And I, rem- I remember there's one exchange where they're sort of there at the encampment, and uh, Roddy's saying, or, or John Nottis' character saying. Uh, Oh, you know, I just I just got to keep working hard, and you know, I'll get a break or whatever. You know, so sort of still having yep. faith in the in the system. And I forget what what Frank's response is, but I seem to remember him having a little bit clearer view that the system is is pretty fucked up, and you know, not every, it's not just a matter of hard work to to you know get ahead and be all right in the society. Yeah, he he references um, giving up a lot of uh, benefits and pay to the Detroit automakers. Or, or in that at that time it was steel, I think. But hey, we're still seeing that now. And then he says, um, "It's the golden rule; those with the gold make the rules." Mm-hmm. And yeah, so he definitely, yeah, I totally agree. He has a much more um, cynical and seasoned view of the world. But I, and, I find yeah. their, I find their relationship fascinating um, because they clearly have great affection for each other. Um, even through the fight and I also still don't know how to quite unpack the scene with them in the hotel room because they have the closest relationship in the movie there's no real romance but they get in there and John Nada looks at Frank in the eyes and says ain't love grand and takes his shirt off and washes himself in the sink (laughs) so I'm uh, again, it's played with something. I'm just not sure <laughs> what what it actually is saying. 
Yeah, the, the scene I, with the the um, the um, in, inside the church where the, they're uh, you know recordings of like gospel music and, and singing being played and and undercover there. Um, you know, they're they're plotting to to overthrow this evil alien uh, overlord. That that may be kind of an homage to the way that um, you know African American spirituals and mm -hmm. uh, and songs were sort of encoding radical messages about freedom and, and escape and, and so on and um yeah but yeah the, the the racial dimensions of it are pretty interesting huh it's just too much and if you're if, if you're watching you know we're talking about california and encampments i'm just saying the bell riots are happening next year for for the star trek heads um yeah, but I mean, like the this was filmed like three or four years before the Rodney King riots, mm -hmm. and the encampment scene, like the the beatings that the cops give to a couple characters, could have been like a choreographed recreation of the Rodney King beatings, um, and so it's you know pretty harrowing. I mean, it would have been harrowing even with without that context, but just, you know, John Carpenter predicting or, you know, mirroring the ways Los Angeles police or police all over the country treat poor and black people. Yeah, yeah, very prescient. A lot of, it reminds me a lot of the late Mike Davis, who was a radical scholar, urbanist scholar and a early critic of, of police power and, and police violence and just recently passed away but you know kind of Los Angeles was his his way of viewing the the whole world and the whole society um, and I, I appreciate you picking both of these movies together because I think they present the homeless um, in a similar and, and very sympathetic way as you know, s still the stereotype of homeless people in America are, you know, like old men um, panhandling on the side of the road, but these films present them as families, people mm -hmm. who, who are working and, and trying to get by and just trying to achieve the American dream. Uh, Grapes are, of wrath. Yeah, exactly. And they're continuously exploited and punished for it. They're... There is no way to a billion. Billionaires are not good people. There is no way to do this. You cannot pick yourself up from the bootstraps. Mutual aid saves lives. Yeah, and I think that the, in this class that I'm teaching, I'm kind of doing it decade by decade a little bit. And the, the, the 30, I'm glad you mentioned the Grapes of Wrath, that, you know, I think came out a couple of years after uh, um, Modern Times. Uh, but definitely one that's sort of emblematic the story based on on the 30s and the, the experience of impoverished farm workers and so on and yeah that was one of those cultural moments where there was just a lot of telling of these stories right it, you had unemployment at like a third at the, at the worst of the depression and yeah it was just visible on people's minds a lot of people trying to make sense of it and really powerful hollywood left organizing in a way that you know was able to get stories like the grapes of wrath modern times um across to a really a broad audience and um yeah there's just like yeah so much there that um is worth uh, revisiting and yeah thinking these struggles and labor in, in hollywood today you know 
it makes me wonder, are we going to be seeing some, some more radical, critically conscious things being written and, and coming out, just the people who have really, kind of really seen that class struggle so openly that the, the point where the, you know, the studio bosses were quoted in the newspaper saying, you know, we just, we're just going to wait them out a few more weeks till people start losing their homes and then they'll, they'll bargain with us. Um, I think there's a really interesting dynamic uh, connection between experiences of labor organizing in, in that industry and, and the kind of stories that get told. And then of course the, the studios and, and the, the, the owners of the, of the, the media system like you know responding and trying to get their version and their stories across but it's 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 interesting what you said about the um the studio bosses thinking they could wait out the writers until they ran out of money um and and lost their homes um the first time i heard this idea was from the the moves that made me podcast and josh olson was talking about how he, he sees so many younger writers who don't be because of the reasons why they're striking don't depend on writing for their income. They all have supplemental income. So the studios had created the monster they could not destroy because they created a workforce that didn't need them for, for their jobs. They're all waiters. They're all working at Amazon. They're all driving Uber. Um, and that's like terrible, but it made them able to withstand a strike that could go on in indefinitely. Um, and hopefully now um, they won't have to, you know, participate in the gig economy to, to, to write for Disney or whatever. Right, right. And I, I do think that some art will eventually talk about it, but it'll, it'll have to be just really good art or, you know, subtle. Like there, there hasn't been a lot of art about covid right that's been very over the top or if it has been people have been not really paying attention to it or that interested to, to it or or just went over people's heads you know how to with john wilson the first season i thought handled covid really well because um, mm. out of nowhere the last episode of season one is like oh well actually we were finishing the season and then COVID happened and it did it. It did it really well. And there was this show, short lived show on HBO as well, Max or whatever the fuck um, called Betty about these just young um, women and non-binary skaters in the Lower East Side. And the second season you know they're wearing masks and they're having they're having stuff and it's 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 really hard to talk about things that are part of the cultural zeitgeist as it's happening but we'll see how it does yeah and i'm i'm just so excited to talk about these movies and also it's exciting to talk about movies that are easily accessible sometimes we talk about movies on the show that are not so easy to find these movies are very easy to find yeah yeah, one of the things that um, in kind of researching the background on, on Chaplin came out and, and in general on like stories of work and unions was like how, how, how and this relates to, to They Live being all about, you know, what, what messages in the media come across, like just how, how deep and widespread the, the censorship was in the, in the 20s and 30s. You know, I think we we're like kind of aware that like they stopped allowing, you know, overt sex and drugs to be shown and like you couldn't have like gangster movies that were 
you know, showing the guy getting away with it. There had to be, you know, punishment or justice or the law prevailing in the end. But um, a lot of the censorship and some of the most like firm was like, you just can't show stories of, um, you know, class struggle, of, of collective action. Um, you can't, uh, you know, expose the kind of violence that, that companies were were doing. And, um, you know, Chaplin was on a blacklist from, from the early 20s. You know, Hoover decided that he was a, a crypto communist and they, they put, put together like a 1500 page dossier over the course of his career and eventually banned him from returning to the U.S. in the early 50s. Um, and so, you know, he was someone who was obviously at the height of the industry and could do, had a lot more flexibility, but, you know, many stories never got told or were, you know, were forced to be changed, literally, you know, coal companies looking at scripts about, uh, you know, striking, striking industries and demanding that this or that change be made. So I think that that kind of history of, of censorship and kind of like direct control over the stories were told is like an important one that, you know, went on very, very clearly and directly then and probably happens in, in a lot more nebulous ways today. But um, important to think about that, those, those sort of filters. Yes. And as, as we wrap down, because we try to keep these episodes just under an hour, um, what, are, what are some things you'd like to impart to us? And, and is there anything that you want to plug? Um. Yeah, I think just like in kind of looking back over this, uh, you know, kind of cinema of the last hundred years through the lens of, of class and, and ideology, like there's a lot of great stories out there. I think of uh, John Sayles' uh, Mate One. I think of um, one that I, I just watched recently, um, The Organizer, we, Italian film from the, the 60s. We, um, did made a one, we did Mate One like three three episodes ago. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the organizer is a lot of fun. It also it's it's kind of more of a neorealist look at, at uh, striking happening in the eighteen nineties in Turin, Italy. But also has like some really fun light comic touches, just like interspersed in uh, Marcello Mastroianni's terrific in it. Um, so those those are the yeah the ones that I've kind of reinforced. Yeah, just how um, there's some great movies out there on, on these um, uh, on these issues. Um, yeah. What was the first part of the question, Scott? If there's anything you want to talk about, like that you're doing. Um, yeah, nothing in particular. I'm, I'm not too involved, but there is a lot of cool organizing going on here in, in Hollywood connected to the DSA. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like expecting some some more interesting stories to be told. And obviously these these struggles and strikes in the industry to, to continue. And um, yeah, it's like I think we're at a moment where more and more people are supportive of, of labor and unions. Um, and I wonder how much of that is, is media, is, is social media. But like, yeah, I think something like 77% of young people favor unions. It's the highest it's been in decades. And um, so, yeah, we've kind of had, had a, a cultural moment where these kinds of stories, I think, are circulating again, maybe in different ways. Um, no. Definitely exciting ones. We, we are having a moment there, you know, even in the past four or five years, Again, my litmus test of saying there shouldn't be billionaires. It's changing. Like, we shouldn't be working so hard and not have a living wage. It's changing. Uh, I meet a lot of people. You know, I work in healthcare, and that's all I'm going to say about it. And I'm talking to people that make a lot more money than me, and they're like, oh, we this, this is not working. So people come in here, we're supposed to heal them, but if... But, they lose a whole week of work and their life is over. 
And people are starting to say like, oh, this got to change. We have to disconnect some of these things, you know? Um, uh, Steve, I'm so, so, so happy to have you on this thing. And and you're, you know, when, when, when your next semester comes out, love to, to have you come back on or, or discuss some other stuff or when we, when we watch the organizer, I'm definitely going to watch it now if you want to come on and talk about it. Yeah, that'll be fun. And one, one more plug I'll make is for like a couple of uh, media, um, at the more perfect union that YouTube page and Instagram, they're making great little news, um, you know, broadcast like a couple minute clips on different labor issues. And then the, the UAW, their, their media team is just like crack. Like they're, they're, um, putting out a lot of great short videos. Um, these Facebook live things that the president Sean Fain goes on and just talks directly to members every once in a while are, are really fantastic. And talking about religion and, and politics, he was like pulled out his grandparents' Bible when he announced the, the, the day before the, the UAW strike and was like quoting, you know, chapter and verse on how, uh, you know, a, a rich man can't get into heaven, you know, any, any better than a camel can get through the eye of a needle and stuff. And so nice. he's kind of returning to that early Christian socialism and just really resonating with, with members. And I think that's that's cool to see, too, like just direct communication and unmediated ability to kind of get this, get the message out and communicate with each other. Um, awesome. Thank you for pointing that out, because that's kind of part of the reason why we wanted to, to do this podcast, because we wanted to... to point out and and discuss some of the the leftist roots of of you know of, of religion so so thank you yes and what, what's the uaw again uh the united auto workers which is now about 20 percent graduate student uh workers as well but has its roots I, in, I, in I, detroit auto industry i meant you said they had a youtube channel um they i, I follow them on instagram i think it may be uaw.union and okay. then the, the Facebook page, I'm not sure the exact ad or whatever, but it should be easy to find. Uh, Sean Fain is the president, and I think his stuff probably comes out directly through the, the UAW union on the, on the Facebook Live. Fantastic. All right, man. It's so good to have you. You bet, man. Great to talk, and I look forward to talking to you guys again soon.